Good day, dear listeners. Steve Prida here with the Management Blueprint Podcast. And my guest today is Brian Jewell, a serial entrepreneur and the COO of Stony Hill Advisors, a conglomerate of merchant banking and advisory businesses that help business owners prepare for and realize lucrative exits. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you, Steve. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, it's exciting to have you on the show. I don't think we had a merchant banker yet on the show. I am sure actually we did not. So I've got some some good questions. I'm curious about that, what you do. But before we get there, please share your entrepreneurial journey with your with our audience. How do you get involved with Story Hill and what are your actual roles in that conglomerate? Okay. I'll do my best to answer that. Let's see. You know, I think you can say being an entrepreneur and an investor is in my blood. My great-grandfather and grandfather immigrated here to the United States, and they were very instrumental in helping develop aspects of San Francisco, Chinatown and other businesses outside of San, in San Francisco as well. In fact, my grandfather opened the first flower store in San Francisco right around... Wow. Night. I think it's right after the earthquake, I believe, is when it happened. Mm-hmm. And he was a, a part of the, in the community, always uh, investing in people, small businesses, helping people. And I grew up, you know, we would go there every weekend and it'd be around that. And it was just, I just thought it was the greatest thing. And I have to say, I admired him. And my father, you know, he tried so many things, went through he persevered. He had a lot of jobs. And eventually he became one of the founders of Yellow Cap San Francisco. And he got to pursue his entrepreneurial journey. And he did really well. And he then became kind of an investor. And then I saw that. I mean, my father was one of these guys. I mean, he participated in Apple's IPO, Marvel. I mean, I go on and on and on. I remember one time that he was on the phone with Howard Schultz of Starbucks when Starbucks had just gone public. And it was just one of those guys, he just he would just do it and go for it. And so all that permeated with me. Now, in college, I actually had several businesses, and but I was thinking of going to law school. I was trying to you know, get to the next level, right? And I was interning with a judge. And the, the judge said to me at one point, he said, Brian, why do you want to become an attorney? And Steve, I had no good answer. He said to me, you know what? You're good at business, negotiating, all that type of stuff. Follow that path and hire attorneys when you need them. So I followed that path. Now, I did think that I was going to go get an MBA. And I was going to go to UCLA, Anderson's executive program and all that. But then I got offered a... I was in the sports and entertainment industry, I should correct that. I was putting together deals with a lot of athletes, funding them, putting together memorabilia deals, licensing, that type of thing. I got this offer from a German venture capital fund to manage and run their operations here in the United States. And it wasn't something that I thought I could do, to be honest with you. I was just, wow, this is just a lot. But I decided, let's do it. I took it on, and this was like right around when the dot-com boom was happening. Mm-hmm. And now I got a chance to elevate my entrepreneurial journey. 
Because when I was had when I had all these businesses in college, someone said to me, he said to me, Brian, you will never be a large success. And of course, that pissed me off, right? But the, and the reason why he goes, you think too small, you're just in small businesses, you need to go bigger. You need to be bigger than that. And that kind of stuck with me, not as advice, but more like I was trying to prove to the world that I, I could, right? So being working with this Sherman Venture Capital Fund was just the turning point of my career. Um, one of the things that we did was figured out a way to look at some of the portfolio companies that might not be huge, massive successes, but still find an exit for them, whether that be acquisition or whether that be a small IPO. And that's kind of how I started down this path. And it just kind of grew from there. We took one of our companies public. I was CEO of the company. So I was a young 28, 29-year-old CEO of a publicly traded company. And that was a massive experience. I was, unfortunately, our investment bankers were in the towers and I was traveling there frequently. And the last time I was there was maybe two or three weeks before 9-11. But I, had ex I got to experience New York now because I'm a California guy. I'm a native San Franciscan. So I've been around Silicon Valley, Southern California, New York, and all that. So now, one of the things that we did, um, we, we have... I'm part of a partner in C2C private investment company, and we have several publicly traded companies. One of them, we wanted to see and pursue a model we had been working on for years that we had helped parts of clients with part of it. We'd done some of it ourselves. We had failures, some successes. So we put this all together, trying to figure out a way to amplify the successes we had, mitigate losses and things that went wrong. And our belief was, is, hey, the M&A business is where we need to be. And so we acquired Stony Hill Advisors as a portfolio company. It's been around, when we acquired it, it had been around for over 12 years. It was based primarily in the Northeast with some, some offices and reps in other parts of the, in the country. And our goal was to expand it either organically or through uh, acquiring other M&A firms on top of it. And so we did put together a consolidation plan, uh, basically to consolidate the consolidators. And um, we're doing both right now. And we're growing. We're all across the United States and getting bigger. Okay. All right. So you acquired Stony Hill. You are basically in the business of helping businesses prepare for sale. You started with your own portfolio companies and now you are doing it for others. And you're investing in some companies, you're advising others. So we can talk more about this whole investment banking, merchant banking scene. But before we go there, I'd like to talk about your framework. And in our pre-call, we talked about networking, that you have been a successful networker. And some people are good at networking, others not so much. So what is your recipe? How do you make networking productive and how does it help you uh, get clients and build business? Well, you know, that's an age-old great question, right? And in any kind of deal-type transactional business, right, deal flow is everything. And deal flow can be, I'm not talking about getting on LinkedIn 10 
10 pitches a day for this startup or that startup unsolicited. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about quality companies that have, if it's early stage, it's got a proof of concept, or if it's later, it's revenue profitable. And the, the thing is, you often have all kinds of middlemen along the way, right? And so how do you get there first? How do you get to be the, the first opportunity? And that's meeting people, boots on the ground, referrals. So right now, I think on LinkedIn, you're, everybody's inundated, no matter what industry you're in with lead generation. I can get you this. I can get you that. But one, and, I, and the lead generation people are going to kill me, but here's the predominant flaw in that model is that if times are getting a little tougher and they are harder, it's harder right now. And everybody gets and hires lead generation folk. And then everybody then is attacking the same base. There's only so many people, so many businesses, so many potential clients for whatever you do. Right. And so that well, they're crushed. And so what do you do with it? I just delete them. I see all these emails. Oh, like they can do this, that, this, you just delete it because you know that it's really not going to be effective. And what is effective, though, is that face-to-face, boots-on-the-ground approach. And it's something that, that's why we're expanding across the United States, is we want that deal flow first. So as a part of, with everybody that we bring in, we're working on some aspects to help them network, help them connect. And for me, I'm using, or a lot of it's we're using our experience, our experience as individuals and mine in particular, you know, I have a pretty big LinkedIn base and, you know, people over the years before, before it got really popular to have followers and a large connection base, people would say to me, why do you have so many LinkedIn connections? Why you you can't possibly know all those people or have met them. And I don't. However, of the 30,000, almost 30,000 connections I have, I can honestly say that I have spoken to, met, or just even been around the proximity, maybe even like a not met them directly, but they were at a conference or heard me speak somewhere or something like that, probably to about a third of the people that I have uh, in my connection. So let me give you an example. I have someone that I just, I'm just about to put a LinkedIn post out about him, but we connected in 2016 in different parts of the country. It was in the Raleigh, Durham, the research triangle area that's just booming. And I was, I've been in Southern California for years and I was thinking about expanding, doing some things out there in North Carolina. So I looked for leaders in the area and I reached out to them and we connected and we had some conversation. However, I just go, you get busy and just doesn't happen, right? Doesn't happen. So now fast forward to 2022. I'm spending more time in that area because of some business interests, some things that we wanted to do in the area and expand in the area. We believe that it's growing, right? So I start going to all the networking meetings out there. Now, most of those are useless for me. I'm running across people that you might meet some nice people, things like that. But from a business point of view, I don't need a music teacher. I don't need another real estate agent. I don't need another wealth advisor. However, you still go to these things sometimes because 
especially when you're new to an area or maybe you don't know a lot of people, you'll find somebody that you connect with. And I did. I found someone that, albeit completely different industries, albeit, you know, there's no business, direct business correlation you could think of for what he was doing, for what I was doing. However, we connected and we liked each other. So we just started talking. And he invited me out for a beer. We get along. And he said, hey, listen, I'm a part of some of these networking groups that aren't like actual networking groups, but they're, I call them cultivated. It's where you invite maybe a dozen or less, never more than a dozen, because then it's too many, but maybe six, seven, eight people, 10's a great number to a lunch or something like that. And now a lot of people think they have to sponsor these things. And sure, you look great. And so what if you're sponsoring it, but then you're making it more of a corporate thing, right? You're making that more of people are thinking you're going to be a pitch. Mm-hmm. So if it's not like that, and it's just say, hey, we're all getting together. And then you just tell front of the wherever you go, go somewhere nice, tell the waiter, wait person that, hey, this is, we're all picking up our own tab, right? Now there's no pressure. Now there's no, it's like a first date. If there's no pressure if, if no one's, paying your way. Okay. So, so Brian, so you call it the cultivated group framework, or we call it a cultivated group framework. So how how do you go about actually creating this cult? Is there a process for creating a group like that? So yes, you, the best way to do it is to look at who you know in the area who would not necessarily conflict because sometimes you just want to avoid that at first. I mean, sure. Wealth advisors can get along with each other. Real estate agents can get along with each other. But if you're not trying to work in that specific industry, it's better to spread it out. Mm-hmm. So to give you an idea of how this all works is the I was invited by this gentleman. And it turns out the person that was throwing, that was bringing everybody together the for this event was this gentleman that I had met over LinkedIn in 2016. So now here it is, seven years later, we meet in person. And that's why you that's a, you can use LinkedIn as a tool, but you don't rely on it. Because if you rely on it, that's hard too. But now you have that personal connection. And since then, we've become friends. He's been a common, incredible referral source for us. And eventually we'll find something that we can do to work together. But that's the other part is when you do have these groups, you have to look at it from not just what's everybody going to give me or do for me, but what can I do for them? What kind of connections can I give them? I might not benefit from it, right? But it's a good back and forth. It's a good show of... So how are you strategic? So you say that it's important to start with the people and then avoid competitors. So obviously you don't want, you don't want any conflicts in the group. How do you put this group together and then how do you engage with them? What is your process? Okay, so the way I do is I'll invite people like like we, we talked about, a diverse group of people. However, because it's not an open public networking group and you're not posting somewhere and saying, oh, come here. Now, now here comes the cultivation part. So you see how people interact. I mean, so if you're the host, you actually maybe just want to chat here and there, but you don't want to get into a deep discussion with everybody. The best way, that, it's one of the flaws that I see 
people that host networking events do is they engage with somebody and ignore everybody else. Mm -hmm. If you're the host, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. If you're the host, you have to put people together, introduce them. Hey, Steve, meet John, John, meet Dave, that type of thing. Give a little introduction, break the ice for them and let them start talking. Now, this is where you see who fits and who doesn't fit. Mm -hmm. If you see people that are being just, and, I, and of course, networking's not easy. And there's people that are introverts, extroverts. Now, I'm not saying that if the person's an introvert, you don't invite mm -hmm. them again. However, you can see when someone is, the difference between someone being standoffish mm -hmm. and an introvert. Or, you know, someone that might be too gregarious and acts like they know everything mm -hmm. when they don't. Mm -hmm. Those are two people that you don't want the, mm -hmm. that type because they convolute everybody else's discussions. Mm -hmm. If you have somebody there that takes over the, the conversation and tries to talk to all 10 people, it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. The other person that you don't want, and, and I know for any of you networkers, you know who I'm talking about, is the person that if you and I, Steve, are having a conversation and someone comes in, breaks into the conversation, rudely turns his back or her back to you, to get in front of me because they want to talk to me or vice versa. Mm -hmm. Those are the people you don't want those people either. They don't work. And because generally people don't like those people, right? Yeah. So they hijack the conversation. Absolutely. So the next time you do it, you don't invite that person, but someone that you may have liked that you thought what was the, a good connection to everybody, you would assume that maybe they know other people like them. So. I liked you, Steve, first time, right? So I say, hey, Steve, I'm doing another one of these in two weeks. If you know somebody that would fit really well with the group, invite them. So now that's how you become and create a referrals. You grow it. However, you're still limiting how many people are going to be there. Best mm -hmm. you can, at least. And so, even if someone's good, you might, they, obviously they can't come to all of them or you might not invite them to this one, but another one. So this is where obviously... Having some form of contact manager is going to help you out. I'm not saying that you have to, you know, be using Salesforce or something like that, but something to help you keep track. So is this an informal approach? So you keep varying the, the members of the group or you are endeavoring to create some kind of a continuation of members uh, and then you just drop and pick members whenever you see fit? How, how does it work? That depends on your goals. Right. Depends on what your goals are. Now, some people are trying to cultivate uh, higher end, really good groups of people that are at a certain level business wise that and I'm not talking about being a part of Vistage or BNI. I'm not talking about something like that where yeah. that's a whole different ballgame. Right. Yeah. I'm talking about something that you're doing for yourself. Right. You're not worried about charging fees or anything like that. <laughs> If you wanted to put together a specific type of group, then you have to you know, certainly involve others. In a, it's a kind of group meeting situation. But what I'm talking about here is something that's totally unstructured, informal. The only structure that it may have is that you're keeping track of when it's doing. Now, that said, you can't feel like you're taking ownership of this because it's informal. So if someone in the group says, hey, Brian is out of town this Friday, but you guys want to get together? You can't have like FOMO, 
You can't have thin skin and say, hey, wait a minute, guys, you're doing it without me. You, you can't do that because it's an informal type yeah. of thing. Okay, that makes sense. So, so basically, the idea is that you cultivate a group of valuable contacts, you bring them together, you're the connector. So they're going to appreciate the opportunity that's going to increase your relationship capital, that you are this kind of person who can bring people together, who can help each other. And then, you know, it's a fluid group, but you try to keep most of the members uh, coming uh, together on a regular basis. So that sounds great. So let's switch uh, gears. So that's the cultivated group framework uh, that's great for building business. And in investment banking, uh, relationships are paramount and referrals are the way uh, that's the most effective to, to build uh, opportunities. So let's talk a little bit about uh, small to medium-sized business investment banking these days. How, how is the market evolving and how do you guys avoid conflicts of interest between your advisory and investment operations? So the example here is, let's say someone comes to me or comes to you, Brian, and they want you to advise them and then how are you going to make sure that um, you represent the interest of that client but if that's a good target investment target for you then you also give yourself the chance to have the first opportunity to maybe have a proprietary transaction does that even work how, how can you handle this kind of conflicts oh that's a great question steve and it, to be honest with you have battled with for decades since i've been involved in this industry if you lead with, I'm the investor, then that's the only thing that the potential client's going to think about mm -hmm. is, or if you're presented that way, right? If you're presented as the investor only, that's the only thing they're going to be thinking about. And on the flip side, if you are just uh, presenting yourself as a service provider, a consultant, things like that, then you are competing with a lot of people. These days, there's a lot of people of the remnants of the boomer generation, the generation below it, millennials now. Millennials who were all in corporate jobs are being phased out for the next generation, right? Because corporate, they don't keep people anymore, right? So you have all types of consultants out there that you're competing with. And if they don't understand that you have maybe more to offer, well, that's not that's doing yourself a disservice as well. So we've experimented with this countless times, and and where we are now, what we decided to do is we basically have three primary things that we do. We have our private investment company, but we're not advertising that. We're not marketing it. We have Stony Hill Advisors, which is the intermediary, the merchant bank, as you would say, the M and A firm. <laughs> and what we did is we created a new division in Stony Hill Advisors called the Stony Hill Group. And the Stony Hill Group is going to be our, is our marketing arm, where we're engaging with sales professionals across the United States that are calling on businesses, not for the exit, but for the service, but being open that we help with the exit as well, that our services are designed to help a business get the resources it needs to drive revenue, grow profitability, and, and position itself for an exit, increase efficiencies, all those types of things. And we're seeing that works. That is working because now 
a, a company sees, okay, well, then when I'm ready, I've got a trusted relationship. Because when we first acquired the M&A firm, we did some tests, right? Marketing tests. And it's almost impossible to time when someone wants to exit their business with your marketing message. Mm -hmm. Lead generation doesn't work. Marketing, I mean, we try, we know. We have a marketing firm, it doesn't work. So, but by becoming their service advisor, then they, that you get that trusted relationship, right? And so that's how we're approaching things. Now, the, in regards to potential conflict about what we may want to acquire or not acquire, what we do is we basically treat ourselves as just another potential source. And we just lay it out like we would with any other potential acquirer or, or merger or whatever opportunity we might find for our clients that are looking for an exit. So we just have basically several options. This is one that you could go with the affiliate of Stony Hill Advisors. So, Okay. So basically, when you say service advisors, then is it exit preparation? Is it marketing as services? What kind of services are you providing other than investment banking services, if any? Well, one of the hardest things to do in any kind of advisory as a company, okay? You know, my, my experience, I've seen it all, done it all, not just as a investor advisor, but as part of the company as well, as an entrepreneur. And what happens when you're the entrepreneur and let's say you, you have the, well, you hire a fractional CFO. You think she's great right? And then you hire a fractional CMO and you think he's great. However, if they're conflicting, and let's say you have an attorney and an accountant as well, and everyone starts, everyone's got their own special interests in mind. Mm -hmm. It's very rare that you can place multiple consultants from different sources and everyone's going to agree, right? They won't be aligned in many no. cases. Yeah. So that's the difference that we bring because any of our service providers that we bring in, whether they're a direct employee of Stony Hill Advisors, whether they're a 1099 consultant that we use exclusively, or whether they're someone that we bring in as an outside source to assist, they understand that the client is ours and that we're working together as a goal. And yep. we're working together as a goal because we're going to work together for everybody. Yeah. And if we find any piece in there that does not and starts recommending other places and other things outside of our firm, then they just don't work with us again. Well, actually, this is very true. When I ran my own investment banking firm, it was really important that we convinced the clients to allow us to bring in an attorney who would be a transaction experienced attorney. Because often the client wanted their own attorney or their attorney was pushing themselves into the deal. They had no idea about how to do an MA transaction and they often frustrated the transaction or they didn't want the client to sell the company in the first place because they thought they would get fired. So they sabotaged the deal that could turn into a nightmare. So, and that, that happens all the time. Yeah, it happens all the time. <laughs> when we've worked just as an investor or acquirer or something like that, right? We've had that happen too many times, which is yeah. why we've we're, we're, we created this model so yes i hear you state yeah. and the other thing that happens is that if the seller 
let's say you're the investor or you're advising the seller and there's another investor. And if the investor brings in a very high powered attorney, then you can you have to have a similar attorney because otherwise often the high powered attorney will essentially try to steamroll the less experienced one, which then becomes defensive and frustrates the deals. So there are, there are many, many situations where it uh, attorneys can uh, really screw these up. But anyway, oh, yes. And just some quick advice there for your listeners and everything out there is when it comes to a lot of the financial documents, private placements, all that type of thing, they're all using the same library. It's most of it's boilerplate. And to give you an example, once upon a time, we had an attorney that great attorney, high powered attorney, just like you said, Steve, you know, cost us 50,000 bucks for all the documents, things like that. We reused that same thing. <clears throat> 10 years later, we engaged him again. He saw the documentation. He goes, well, I got to redo all the documentation. It's going to cost you $75,000 and or whatever the number was, right? And one of my partners said, you know, that's the exact same document that you created years ago. <laughs> and he was like, oh, right? And ended up just making some edits for a fraction of what he was looking for. Yeah, that's happened too. <laughs> So, so Brian, uh, our time is, is close to an end, but I, I want to ask sure. something that uh, I'm, I'm personally very uh, curious about. So one of the things I teach to my clients, and I help them kind of make their businesses viable uh, so that investors would be attracted to it, is that they should pursue their ideal lives. So it's not just about selling their business, but what are they going to do afterwards? So the business is really a vehicle them to uh, for them to take uh, themselves from where they are to their ideal lives. So here's my question for you. I mean, you helped a lot of businesses sell, uh, you invested, you bought businesses from entrepreneurs. So what kind of ideal lives did you see these entrepreneurs migrated to? Can you give examples or have you seen like different scenarios where people sold their business and they transitioned to doing something else that was much more fun for them and which was much more fulfilling for them? Sure. The, you know, I've seen it all, all kinds of things, almost every certain set of circumstances, though, when they get the exit, they take some time off, they travel, you know, just relax, maybe do some modifications to the home, those types of things, catching up on aspects of life that may have not got as much attention when they were in the grind as an entrepreneur. Mm -hmm. Now, what happens though is, and it's, sometimes it depends on the size of the exit. I've seen people that have had extremely sizable exits that become what we call a ghost. And mm -hmm. that means they completely disappear. Their social media scrubbed. Only the closest people know where they are. They just go vacation. Or I know one gentleman, he and his wife literally go from cruise to cruise to cruise. They just cruise the world. They don't even have a residence anymore. Now they have some permanent addresses. So when they hit that dock and port, they get their mail, right? Mm -hmm. But they're just cruising around. And when actually, when you get down to it, the cost for them to do that is, it's pretty good. It's well done. Because what they did is they take, you take whatever you get in your exit, right? And sometimes some people are make the, the mistake of spending that capital. Mm -hmm. But the smart ones will have engaged. I'm sure you tell your clients this, an exit planner or a wealth advisor that understands this 
and they tuck that money aside and they live off the interest. They live off the gains. Maybe it's not compounding, but that's what they- Or they, or they live off the tax savings. So if you yes. are a perpetual yes. traveler and you're not spending, you have three different places that you spend your life or time or you travel around, then essentially you stop being a tax resident in any specific place and that can save you Abs- taxes. Absolutely. The other thing is that those that don't like that, that get, they get bored with that and they need that something to do that business and they just, they're that entrepreneur of them is just there. We see a lot of them become actually go into M&A. We have multiple people that are M&A advisors with us that have had previous exits. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And now they can maybe not be in the same kind of grind, right? Because they, they have a little bit of something behind them or they keep going. So we see that. We see often become, they become angel investors, mm-hmm. advisors. We see that a lot. That's also very common. And, or, and then kind of the, some that just re-engage and whether they re-engage and get into a new business where they're going 110% or they start using their, what they've learned and be a part-time or even absentee owner in their venture. So yeah, kind of seeing, you've seen all of the above. Yeah. It's interesting. So people who basically take a break and rebuild parts of their lives that perhaps they neglected, like remodel their homes and get a second home in Florida or something. Then you have the people who, who just want to have fun and they travel and maybe they save some taxes. And then you have people who become advisors or other companies, they leverage their experience or they become investors. You have the money and some of the money they invest in other companies and leverage their experience. Or I've, I've seen that as well, that someone saw their business, they spent, they took some time off, they came back, started another business, and in three or four years, they actually were better than the original business they sold, and they became a competitor when, after their non-compete expired. So, yep. all right, Brian, a very interesting conversation. So if our listeners would like to connect with you, learn more what you do, how they can maybe do business with you, where should they go, what do you recommend uh, they check out? You know, I think the best thing is LinkedIn, actually. Go to LinkedIn, look me up, reach out. I, I can't connect with everybody because I'm at them. They have a maximum connection level, but you can follow me. You can follow me. And you, when you ask to connect, you can send me a message and I've got it. And also I have a, a phone number posted on my LinkedIn profile that people can send me texts and reach out to me that way as well. Sounds good. So Brian Jew, the CEO of Study Hill Advisors. Jew is spelled J-U-E, so you can find him on LinkedIn and connect with him, follow him, and check out his uh, the group of conglomerate companies that he is running, and you'll see it being very, very interesting. Brian, thanks for coming and sharing your uh, journey and your experience. The Cultivated Group Framework is pretty cool for building available connections. And uh, for those of you listening, uh, stay tuned every week. We come with another entrepreneur and they share their unique framework with you and with us. Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Steve, thank you so much. (laughs) 